Welcome to Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. You've tuned in to hear compelling conversations on hot topics and trends with law enforcement professionals and personalities from across Canada. Hello, Blue Line, the podcast subscribers. We hope you're doing well and welcome back to another episode of Blue Line, the podcast. I'm Brittany Schroeder, editor of Blue Line magazine. Today, we are joined by retired RCMP officer, Lori White. We have the great opportunity to speak with Lori about an event that changed her life while working for the RCMP. This event really taught her the meaning of officer resiliency, and it even led to writing her own book. First off, I'd like to say thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Amazing. I am really excited to talk to you today. Like when you told me your story back in the fall, I was moved by it and we shared a little review of your book in our magazine and I even wanted to go on and read it as well. And so I'm really excited for our listeners to be able to hear from you today as well. So my first question is kind of a general one. What inspired you to become a member of the RCMP? I grew up in Brockville, Ontario, which is a, a smaller town about an hour from Ottawa. And in Ontario, the RCMP doesn't have the same sort of visibility that it does in many of the other provinces. And so what I saw the RCMP doing um, living on a, on a border in a border town was more of the federal stuff. So I didn't see that day-to-day -day municipal policing or even the, the provincial policing. I saw that the federal enforcement and that's what I thought that I was signing up for. So after I'd finished university, I actually was working at a gym where I met a local RCMP officer and he said, hey, you know, um, have you ever thought about policing? And actually up until that time, I hadn't considered it. So he said, you know, you're, you're into fitness, you're outgoing, I think it'd be a really good fit for you on a lot of levels. And so that's when I started to explore it. And I applied, I think, starting um, my application process in, I would think, uh, January, I think, of 1995. And I was at Depot in Regina by the summertime. Oh, wow. Yeah, I also grew up in Ontario. And I agree, there's, there's not as much RCMP that you hear about here, whereas if you were living out west, which you are now, um, you hear about it a lot more and there are much more of a presence in the community. So that's really cool that you decided to go that route instead of doing like municipal law enforcement that Ontario has. Yeah, I, I, I really didn't know what I was signing up for, but I have to say that once I got to depot, I was 100% uh, in. The passion and the commitment was definitely there. And so while I wasn't one of those people who had thought of law enforcement as my only career choice, you know, from a young age, it certainly became that once I was embedded into the, to the culture. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, can you tell me about the first few years of your career with the RCMP? Yeah, so when I was in depot, they uh, assign your postings and they, at that time, kind of led you to believe that you might have a say in where you go. Uh, so initially you put down your top three provinces and then you can narrow it down to areas. Mm -hmm. And so I put my top three provinces as Ontario and Alberta mm -hmm. and then British Columbia. And then I got British Columbia, which is my third choice. Um, and so when I knew that I was going to British Columbia, we were standing there, I remember several weeks before graduation. So I knew I was going to the province, but I didn't know the area. And I remember standing there at attention and they call you by your last name and they said, wait, Kitimat. And I thought, where the hell's Kitimat? So I quickly run and get a paper map and I'm looking all around Vancouver because you think that 
if you're not from BC, Vancouver seems to be BC. And <laughs> Kitimat was nowhere near Vancouver. So I went north, 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 and there was Kitimat. So I arrived in Kitimat uh, on a rainy evening and I kind of joke and say that it proceeded to rain for the next five years because there is a lot of rainfall there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I really didn't know what to expect. The community was about 10,000 people. And I was only there for a short time when they decided to change the shift schedule to uh, straight nights or straight days. So depending on the number of people they had. Um, so I got assigned straight nights for almost 10 months. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. That was a lot. So my first year was very challenging. I didn't see the light of day a lot and I was struggling because I just didn't have the opportunities to get involved in the community the way that I wanted to and that just because of my work schedule. So during that time, I went through a lot of self-reflection and, and thought, you know, this really isn't a lifestyle for a 26 year old. And I really wanted more out of my quality of life as a bigger picture. So I thought, you know, what, I'll give myself to a year, a full year. And then I can decide that if I walk away, then I've given it a full effort. Yeah. And so by the time a year came around, the shift schedule had changed. I'd made some friends. I'd become a little more involved in the community. And I really, really was passionate about the work. So I stayed. Oh, well, that's a good story. I I was stuck in the night for so long. And then the shift changed. I made some friends and I stuck around. I did. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I was really passionate by then. I really enjoyed the work. It just... Uh, and now that all pieces were falling into place, it was a good place to live. Awesome. And I think that's, you know, I feel like most people might not feel the exact same thing with every single job, but it's just like, you know, you go through the growing pains of the first couple months and then you finally like settle into a groove and it, it seems not so bad. <laughs> it's true. You have to give yourself some time. You can't make that decision really hastily. That's for sure. Especially after the commitment that you'd shown, you know, with training and that type of thing, you, you really have to give it some time. Exactly. Now, while you were on a shift with RCMP, um, you were wounded and that is kind of what changed your life. And I'd love to hear about the event that happened and, you know, what kind of happened afterwards. Yeah, so I was investigating an alleged pedophile. So in those first few years, I ended up doing a lot of sex assault investigations. And so on November 27th of 1998, I and two of my partners went to execute a search warrant at his residence. Mm -hmm. And I was standing on the right side of the door underneath the carport. And one of my partners was on the left. And then the third member was around the back of this um, unit within the townhouse complex. Mm -hmm. And we were just, you know, we were just getting into position, trying to figure out, you know, we had a strategy, but we had just gotten into position. All of a sudden I heard a big pop and it was a really loud pop. And it was like a balloon popped right beside my ears. And my ears were instantly ringing. I had a hard time hearing. And I looked at the door that was in front of me and it was a white door and it had a black hole in it. And I smelled the familiar smell of gunpowder. Oh, wow. And I looked down and I saw this grayish, whitish, blackish smoke kind of coming from my shin. Oh my gosh. And my partner and I looked at each other like, what the, what, what was that? And then it, I realized like everything kind of kicked in. All my senses were telling me what it was. It was so strange how it was all my senses that kicked in before my brain actually figured out what happened. And I looked at him, I said, I've been shot. And he said, what? And I said, yeah, I've been shot. And he said, lie down. 
So I, I was still standing there and I deliberately followed you know, my instructions and I laid down on my, my left side and he quickly tended to me and I heard him on the radio saying 1033 and it's officer down. That's the worst radio code that any police officer can hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, means emergency. It means drop whatever you're doing, come. And he said, you know, you got one bullet hole in your, in your right leg. And he dragged me to safety behind a neighboring vehicle. And that's just when chaos ensued. Oh, wow. And you actually named your book that, The Radio Call. I did. It was it was a most life changing day uh, in my life, you know, that I'd had up until then. I was 28 years old. And um, yeah, it was a pivot point in in so, so many ways. Uh, I have to ask, um, while you were sheltering behind the car, did your partners get the person that shot you? So he actually, there was a 10 hour standoff. So I was whisked away by the ambulance and taken down to the hospital in Kitimat where they made arrangements for me, for me to go to Vancouver. Okay. I was def- definitely needing um, more expertise than what was available in the North. Yeah. And um, there was about a 10 hour standoff with the guy in, who was in, inside the residence and he had shot two shots as it turns out. Um, one went out the back of his, his home and one went out the door that I was near and there was a 10 hour standoff. And by the time that whole negotiation and the hurt team responded and and dealt with it all, uh, he had actually committed suicide. Okay. Now focusing back onto you, you were rushed to Vancouver and tell me about what was kind of going through your head after you woke up, you know, those first few days, weeks after, um, after the incident. I was conscious for about four hours in Kitimat before I actually succumbed to the shock and the and the blood loss and the trauma. Uh, and I just remember in those four hours, willing myself to keep my eyes open because I knew that if I could keep my eyes open, it was proof that I was still alive. Yeah. And so that was my goal in, in those hours was to just keep, keep my eyes open. And finally, I, I did succumb. And when I came to after, I think it was about an eight hour surgery, um, I woke up to the news that my leg had been amputated. And I mean, that just word seemed so foreign and so unfamiliar. I just couldn't even wrap my head around it. And I was so heavily drugged and hazy and um, just so much blood loss that I, I just couldn't process that. And in fact, I, I didn't even look at what was left of my leg for several days because I just couldn't face that reality. Of course. And now you did, I'm kind of skipping ahead. Um, but you did return to the RCMP. I just want to, I want to know, you know, how you found that motivation, how you found that strength to really go back and, you know, you know, what it was like, what you were feeling, just anything about that process of, you know, recovery and back on the job. I had a lot of trauma, as you can imagine. I, the wound itself was was a challenge. Um, it was a sawed-off 303 rifle. And so those kind of bullets go in, they hit my shin bone and my, so there are two bones in your lower leg. It shattered both of those. And essentially those kind of bullets, once it hits something like that, they kind of mushroom. And so it pretty much took my calf with it. So there was a lot of leftover residual stuff to deal with in terms of um, my stump. And I also in have a, I also had a large wound from my groin to my knee on my left side where they had continued to take vein to try to restore the circulation to my foot before having to amputate it. So I had just my whole lower body was, it had gone through a lot. So when you talk about the physical pain, 
excruciating psychological pain. You know, who am I now? What What's yeah. my future going to become? Like, I just, I, I had so much uncertainty of so much fear. And so there were a lot of dark times that followed. Um, fortunately for me, during one of those dark times, I had a visit by another RCMP officer who had lost his leg uh, not too long before me. Wow. Yeah. His reasons were cancer. And so he came in to my hospital room and he was just, his presence was just hard to really describe. Uh, he was so positive and so committed to going back to work and, and he just inspired me so much. And he was absolutely committed to the fact that we were going to go do the pair, the RCMP physical test, and we were going to go back to work. Both of us were going to do that. And he inspired me so much and he motivated me over the next several months to do, in fact, that. And so I started rehab and I just buckled down and, and um, really worked hard. Once I started to learn how to walk, then I walked, I wanted to learn how to walk without a limp. And then I wanted to learn how to run and I wanted to learn how to skate and swim and rollerblade and do all those things that I had, I had taken for granted. And uh, so once I was able to get some of those things in place, um, then my goals really were to pass that test and go back to work. And I was fortunate to be able to do that in October of 1999. Awesome. And it was really, I guess, you know, like adapting to that new normal, the mentality of it. I know this other RCMP officer was really motivating and it got you going. But, you know, did you have days where you just like, I can't do this, you know? Like I'm, I'm sure you did, but I'd love to to hear. Yeah, I think in those early months, especially weeks, really, um, I I was just so overcome with with the the new challenges that I faced. Um, I, I definitely had a lengthy phase of feeling suicidal. I just I, I had so much anxiety and fear about the future, and I was angry. I thought everyone was telling me you know, I, I should be so grateful to have survived, but I sure didn't feel grateful. I really felt like I got shafted and I had a really difficult time trying to envision what my next steps were going to be. And it was, uh, it was a very, very dark time. There's no question about that. So I think that I'm very fortunate that I had so much support and so many resources at my fingertips in, in order to be able to access those. And I'm very, very grateful for those um, because I just don't think that I would have had the success that I did end up having had I not had those things in place. Of course. And now that you, or you did make it back to the RCMP, I know you're retired now, but you know, what was it like being back on the job and being around your fellow officers? Like, what was that feeling? And, you know, was it excitement? Was it just, you know, triumphant? You made it back. You know, what was it like? It was, it was exhilarating, really. I mean, I had to, had this goal. And while you look back now and think 10 months from amputation to return to work was not that long. To me, it was a very, very long, drawn out process. I mean, it was a grind. I was day in, day out, uh, physio and rehab and working out and just every relearning so many things that had been you know, take it away from me. Mm -hmm. So when I did successfully go back to work, I remember sitting there and I was just so excited to be dispatched to my first call. And I remember finally they called me and they sent me out to do a bear patrol. <laughs> <laughs> that actually happened. It really legitimately was my first call back. Uh, but I don't think there has been any more um, enthusiastic bear patrols than there were than were conducted by me that day. It was very exciting. <laughs> I would have done anything. So I was really thrilled to to be back. And I had chosen to return to Kitimat because 
while some people didn't support that, they felt like I should have a new start somewhere else. I really felt that I needed to prove myself to myself. And the best way to do that was going to be to reduce some of those external stressors. So I knew my way around the community already. I already had a supportive group of colleagues. The community was very supportive and, and encouraging. And so I felt like if I was going to have success returning to work under the new circumstances and my new normal, then I had to go back there. And, and um, I knew that I would have the best chance of success. And so that's what I did. And it ended up working out very well for me. That's amazing. And I would assume it was like a sense of closure as well that, you know, this event happened and then you went back and you proved to yourself and others like, I can still do this. I am still able to be an RCMP officer and do a great job. Absolutely. And I I felt like I really needed to build my confidence, of course. And so I knew that at that time, Kitimat was a five-year posting. And so I knew by going back when I did, I had about a year and a half left before it would be time to transfer. And I thought that was actually a perfect amount of time for me to regain some confidence and and really teach myself um, or really learn if if I was going to be if this was going to still be part of my future, if policing was still going to be part of my future. And and I think that it was a really wise decision. Of course. And when was it that you retired from the RCP? Like how much longer after um, you came back on the job, did you uh, stay? I returned to work in October of 99 and I retired in January of 2020. Long career. (laughs) career. (laughs) I made it almost 20, almost 24 years. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, This is going to make me sound maybe bratty, but that's almost as long as I've been alive. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. (laughs) No, that's, that's incredible. I, I'm so glad that you found the motivation, the inspiration, and you're like, this is what I want to do. And you stayed around for so long. Like, that's incredible. Thank you. Maybe I'm just stubborn. I think that's definitely a factor. (laughs) No, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) Um, Now that you are retired, I know you speak a lot on officer resiliency. Do you want to tell me about that and how that came to be? Uh, I mean, we know how that came to be, but. (laughs) I I always wanted to write a book and every time I would write and put it into this document, I, it was kind of a dumping ground. So it wasn't really a formal journal or anything like that. It was just kind of a dumping ground. and. Every time I would go back at it, I would think, okay, what what am I, what's the end result gonna look like? Like what am I what's my vision for this? And mm-hmm. and I just couldn't find exactly what I was trying to accomplish by doing it. So what I did find interesting is once I was retired, I was able to go back and look at that document and and really analyze and reflect because now I had some time and some distance from my career in the way that it was. And so I think I looked back at those experiences and those words through a different lens. Right. And I really finally found the tone that I was looking for. And so I was spending significant amount of time. Uh, I had retired just before COVID and then COVID hit. And I spent a lot of time really going back through what I had written over the 22 years preceding and, um, and really just editing it and, and making it, into something that I wanted to be proud of. And so when I finally got it to the stage that I felt good, I thought I need to go to somebody who's neutral, somebody who doesn't know me, somebody who's professional. And I found that person and I said, okay, you need to read this manuscript and let me know if this is something that I just bind up at Staples and leave for my kids someday, that's okay by me. I just need to know kind of where to go from here. And 
he came back and said, no, I think you have a, a great message here. And I had done an extensive amount of speaking before. And so I felt somewhat confident, but I just was nervous too. You just don't know when you're putting yourself out there in such a vulnerable way, how it's going to land. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, we worked together and we edited it down and, and, um, I was really pleased to be able to publish it last August and it's called 1033 An officer down steps back up. Was it your idea to title the book 1033? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was my idea. I think that, um, those words were, like I said, the pivot point for me yeah. and, um, I just really wanted to have a play on the fact that, you know, I have a prosthetic leg and, and walking, stepping was, was just really powerful to me. So um, it was a title that I, uh, I, yeah, I was really quite pleased with. The cover was also great, I, I must say. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so now having written a book and, you know, having spent so long with the RCMP, and you've experienced so much and there might be things that you experienced that other officers are experiencing now. Do you have any suggestions for any officer that might be struggling? I, I absolutely do. And I think that taking care of your health first, we often, because we're, we're civic minded people, we're in public service. We tend to put other people and their needs, um, our jobs ahead of our own. Mm -hmm. at many times. And I think that's often to our own detriment. So we really need to put our own health first. Our family deserves that and we deserve that. So we really need to learn when to prioritize that and to say no. So I think that's really critical. Um, and it's something that we need to learn early on. I think that I have so many tips. I mean, using your annual leave, it seems so simple, but we we earn it. We need it. We need those breaks. And our family also needs us to have those breaks away from, from work and the all encompassing kind of nature of, of our jobs. I think that it's important to advocate for yourself. It's really important to ask for what you need. And I know sometimes when we're struggling, it's really difficult. So it's important to cultivate those relationships with other people, whether it's our partner or our colleagues at work, family mm -hmm. members enlist somebody to be able to reach out for you because there are answers out there and they're becoming fortunately easier and easier to access. Um, I think that back when I was first struggling, people were talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, or mental health issues. And now we're really, we're, I think we're doing a really good job of reducing the stigma. We have a long way to go, um, but there's a lot of fear for police officers that, oh, if we admit that we are struggling or, or suffering, then it's going to have a negative impact on our career. Right. And I think we're getting better at that. And that's really important. I think that reaching out for help is, is critical. And I do think that having psychological assistance available, even when you're well, is really important because I don't know that always, we don't always have the energy to advocate for ourselves or to um, ask for help. So if we have a baseline for when we're actually in good places, it makes it easier to uh, use those, or utilize those um, psychological resources when we are struggling. Definitely. So I think that psychological assistance is, is not just about in crisis mode, but it's also about maintenance over time. I think it's really important that we get to know ourselves and, and know what makes us happy. And we really need to foster our, our interest in other things that aren't police related. Cause I think many of us get so absorbed in our work and our new communities often, especially if you're transferring around mm -hmm. that we sometimes put the things that we'd like to do on the shelf. And that then translates into sort of shelving some of our relationships with other people as well. Right. And sometimes we get so caught up in just our police world that we don't 
tend to put as much energy into maintaining those relationships. And I think that's really important as well. So I think it's hobbies. I think it's leave. It's, it's um, personal health. It's advocacy for yourself. Um, I think it's um, also remembering too, when you're struggling, that you're not alone. And even though when we are struggling, we feel like we are, we're absolutely not. And I think the last thing I would say is that everybody's got a story. And so by sharing our stories, I think it really helps normalize these conversations that need to continue to happen. Amazing. And you shared your story and I'm sure it's, you know, it's touched a lot of people. It's it's touched me and I'm hoping that this podcast on top of it all, you know, reaches the people that really need to hear it right now. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Brittany. Really appreciate it. It's amazing. Um, Again, thank you so much for joining me today and really sharing your journey with me and with all of us that are listening. Um, Like I said, when I heard your story last fall, like I jumped at the opportunity to to promote it in our magazine and now promote it here with with our Blue Line podcast. Um, To all of our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Blue Line, the podcast. Be sure to check us out on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can stay up to date on all of your Canadian policing news at blueline.ca. And once again, thank you, Lori. Thank you. Thank you for joining Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. Thank you.